0: His covenant and blood support me in the whelming flood. When every earthly prop gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds within the veil.
1: Well, I'd like to welcome you here this morning here in Bellingham. Those of you joining us in Skagit, so thankful that you've allowed allowed us to have Pastor Brian on loan this weekend, and we have traded you out at Pastor Mike for Pastor Brian. It's good to have you with us. Those watching live stream online right now, thanks for joining us as we are in week four of this series anchored in hope. A little over 10 years ago, a book came out. The book was entitled Learned Helplessness, kind of a psychology book. And in that book, there was a a medical study that had been cited. In this medical study, there were 122 subjects, and all of these 122 subjects had two things in common. All of them were men, And all of them had just suffered their first heart attack. That's what kept them in common. And there was a lot of medical studies about them over the the course of of years. But one of the things that this book pointed out was that all 122 of these men were evaluated on their degree of hopefulness or pessimism. And what they found is as they followed them, amongst many other things, over the course of eight years... The 25 most pessimistic men on this list, after eight years, 21 of them had died. Conversely, the 25 most optimistic, most positive, most hope-filled men, only six of them had died over those same eight years. And this was their conclusion. Loss of hope increased the odds of death by more than 300%. It predicted death more accurately than any medical risk factor, including blood pressure, damage done to the heart and cholesterol levels see it appears at least from this study that hope is a life and death situation what i learned from this is it is better for me to eat a bacon double cheeseburger with hope than kale and quinoa in despair and that now that's not necessarily biblical it's just what i got out of this Hope is such an important thing to us in every area of life, in every arena. I mean, I could bore you with statistic after statistic this morning from psychologists that talk about how hope makes such an emotional difference in people's lives and their well-being. I could tell you how family uh, family life therapists will tell you that in a troubled marriage, one of the most telling factors of if this marriage will last is if there is hope, if the couples believe that they can actually come back together. It's hope that is that factor. In the world of education and academia, there's unbelievable statistics that would show that a student's a matter of hope and belief in how he's gonna do has a greater impact on their scholastic output than their SATs or their IQ. Even in the areas of of work, HR departments will show that hope has a lot to do with absenteeism. And there have been scores of studies and books written about hope and resilience for people like POWs, people who've gone through traumatic losses, people who've had unbelievable pain, abuse, isolation. It's hope that is the factor. And hope is such an important thing. Emil Brunner, the Swiss theologian, said, As oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope to a life of meaning. And we've been just embracing this whole subject of hope. One of the smartest men, wisest men who ever lived, wrote this in Proverbs chapter 13. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Now here's the irony in this whole thing, is that in those times in our life, when there are circumstances, there are situations, there are seasons where we're going through some very difficult times, when hope is so desperately needed, when there's the greatest demand for hope in our lives, it's in those same seasons when hope seems to be at its shortest supply. I mean, you just think about this. When things are going great, when you're living in the land of Lake Wobegon, where all the women are strong and all the men are handsome and all the children are above average, when everything is good, it's easy to be hopeful. Hope is there for you. But what about when you face difficulties? What about when there's discouragement? What about when the result is despair? When you need hope the most, that's when it seems like hope is so fleeting and so hard to come by. And that's what I want us to talk about today. How can we be hopeful? How can we overflow with hope when the situation, when the circumstance seems hopeless? As I mentioned, we've been in this series, this is the fourth week, and if you're joining us today for the first week, we're glad you're here. I think there's some things you're going to get out of this talk today, but I would encourage you as well, if you'd like to, to go online to watch some of the other ones, especially week one that was kind of foundational to the entire series. We've been looking at this thing of biblical hope, which is different than the uncertainty that we often use with hope, That like, I hope something happens. But I want to uh, point out that biblical hope is not some, some way of just hyping yourself up into somehow trying to believe that everything is always going to turn out the way you want it to. Biblical hope is not just wishful thinking and wishing upon a star, crossing your fingers and hoping you get lucky. Biblical thinking, as powerful as this is, is not just positive thinking. It's not even just optimism. This biblical hope that we're looking at, hope is greater even than optimism. It is deeper, it is more lasting, it is more profound. It will see us through. During during the years of apartheid in South Africa, there were a couple names that that became kind of um, very familiar worldwide. One of them was the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And he had experienced, seen, and lived through the atrocities of apartheid. He had spoken out against it. And he had written some books. And one time in an interview, the interviewer asked about one of his books and said, You know, Reverend Tutu, are you really as optimistic as your book purports that you are? This was his response I'm not optimistic, no. I'm quite different, I'm hopeful. And he went on to say, I'm a prisoner of hope. And if anyone would know what it means to be a prisoner, it would be Desmond Tutu or any black that spoke out against apartheid in those days. I'm a prisoner of hope. There's something deeper than just optimism. John Ortberg, in his book, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat, said this, Hope includes all the psychological advantages of optimism. But it is rooted in something deeper. When I hope... I believe that God is at work to redeem all things, regardless of how things happen to be turning out for me today. Hope does not prevent me from expecting the worst. The worst is what the hopeful are prepared for. I think that is such an amazing line. Hope does not prevent me from expecting the worst. The worst is what the hopeful are prepared for about 6 or 7 months ago pastor Kip uh, preached a sermon here i believe it was in may early may and there was a point that he made in that sermon where he talked about as followers of Christ that our attitude and our approach to life should not be a what if approach but an even if approach because if we approach life with this what if what if the, what if brings us to this point of uncertainty and this crippling fear what if this happens what if this what happens what if this But if we approach it with an even if and confidence, that isn't an uncertainty. There's a confidence that comes, not with a crippling fear, but with a liberating freedom of hope because of who God is. That even if this happens, we can have hope. I, I I know that all of us at one time or another have been impacted and inspired by the life of somebody who's faced some horrible situation and yet remained hopeful. And as that's inspiring, it, it's also sometimes maybe a little discouraging because you might come to this conclusion, I could never have faced that and been hopeful. And then we decide that hope must just be hardwired into their, their, their DNA. They're just, they're just more hopeful than I am, which on the one hand is true. But I think if you ask those people who went through incredible loss or pain or suffering, difficulties, difficulties, that they would say it wasn't always easy. It wasn't always just this, I just have this hope. That's just kind of how I'm wired. In fact, I think they would say if you're chasing some kind of a happily ever, ever, happy, happily ever life, you're, you're chasing a fantasy. And I think if you dug down a little deeper, you would find that those people did some things intentionally that would help them to be more hopeful. And that's my desire for us. That we wouldn't just grow in our understanding about hope but we would learn and grow in our hopefulness. That we would, we would increase our hope quotient. And I think sometimes sometimes as Christians we just want a little quick fix. We want the little scripture, the little pill that will just make everything alright. Make it so easy. And maybe it's not so easy. One of the things that and I'm going to offend some of you here in a minute, but hear me all the way out before you walk out. One of the things that, that always troubles me is when I hear people say, my favorite verse, my favorite promise is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. This is a beautiful verse. But the vast majority of times that people point to this verse, say, this is my favorite verse, this is my favorite promise, they don't recognize, realize the context that this verse was given. Or if they do, they, they just conveniently forget about the context of where these words were spoken. It was in the most desperate situation when a, a marauding country named Babylon came in and took over Israel destroyed their national identity, their spiritual identity, ripped families apart, children were taken from parents, relatives were taken, never to see each other again. Their livelihoods were destroyed, their homes were destroyed, they were kidnapped and they were taken against their will to a foreign country in a foreign culture with a foreign language to serve a foreign king. Some of them would never return. It was a desperate and hopeless situation when everything had been taken from them. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone say my favorite verses are Jeremiah 29, 10, and 11. Because in verse 10 it says, this is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. I know the plans I have for you. Talk about deferred hope. He says, yeah, this will be your favorite verse for 70 years. How do we remain hopeless in those 70 years? And what's interesting, and I don't have time to go into this, so God says, following this, if you read it in context, he says, you're gonna be here for 70 years, settle in, get get ready for that. But he says, this is what I want you to do, seek me. All the things you hope for may not come to fruition, but you seek me in the midst of all this. God says, yeah, I'm still in control. My plans and my purposes are still gonna happen. They can't be thwarted, but it's on my timeline, And there may be some hope that is deferred. We have to get away from this idea, this thinking, this bad theology, that just because we are the sons and daughters of God, just because we've been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ, by his blood covering us, that somehow we're exempt from hardships and difficulties in this life. That is never promised to us in Scripture. In fact, the beautiful thing about Scripture is that the Bible never, ever denies the harsh realities of life. It never says, hey, you know, you're never going to have another difficulty. It's never going to be hard. You're going to have easy, smooth sailing, no storms in life. Quite the opposite. The Bible says, listen, it's in the, even in these difficult times, even in the harsh realities, and especially in the harsh realities, that you need to have a hope that can withstand the winds and the storms. You need to have the hope as the anchor for your soul when the, when the waves are raging and the battle is, is, is in full force. That's when you really need a hope. The Apostle Paul, who we'll talk about in just a minute, was writing a letter to a church in Corinth. And he was, he was talking about life and the, the, how fragile life is and even our lives. And he says, you know, we're, we're like jars of clay. And then he goes through this kind of a... I don't know if it's a litany or a kind of this this cadence about the reality of life and the reality of hope. And he says to them in 2 Corinthians, we are hard-pressed on every side. Does not stick his head in the sand and say, everything's great. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. There's hope. Here's the reality. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We are persecuted but not abandoned. We are struck down, but we're not destroyed. He says, here's life, here's the harsh reality of life, but here's the beautiful reality of hope in Jesus Christ. Even though this is happening, these circumstances, this situation, we have Jesus. And he would go on to say, we carry around the death of Christ in our body so the life of Christ could be in you. And because of the resurrection of Jesus and because of the grace of God, he comes to this great conclusion in verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for you and for me. That no matter what kind of circumstances you face, are going through, what kind of seasons of life you're in, while everything may just seem to be crumbling around you, that we don't lose heart. And inwardly, we are being renewed. We are being transformed. We are becoming more hopeful. We are overflowing with hope day by day. And we would grow in that. One more, and then we'll get on to, really, the sermon. <laughs> this is a long introduction. I realize that. And the last night of of Jesus' life before he was crucified, he's with his disciples. They're in the upper room. They're having a great meal. Um, Tapestries would be made of this meal later. So they're in the upper room, and Jesus talks to them. And he knows their world is going to be turned upside down. They are going to feel hopeless and absolute despair within less than 24 hours. Jesus knows that his world is going to be turned upside down. And in this time together with them, he begins to tell them all these things, some things that that we're familiar with. When he would say things like, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come back to be with you. He would tell them things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He would talk to them about how he is the vine, and they are the branches, and if they will remain in him, he will remain in them. And if they ask anything according to his will, he'll give it to them, and that his joy will be in them, and their joy will be complete. How he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who will come and dwell right within them. And how there will be joy. There will be a time of grieving, but there will be joy. He tells them all these things at this Last Supper. And at the very end, he says, and all of you are going to scatter, but I will not be alone because my Father is always with me. After he tells them all of these things, he lets them know why he told them all of those things. And Luke mentioned this this verse last week as he introduced that new song, Overcome. John 16, Jesus said, I have told you these things, all of that stuff, so that in me you may have peace. Reality check, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus said, there are, there are going to be difficulties that you're going to face. There's going to be failures that you're going to go through, some of them within just a few hours. There's going to be times when you think it's all, all is lost. He says, but I have told you these things because there's peace and there's hope because in me, remember Christ in you, the hope of glory, in me you'll have peace and I have overcome. The world so here's what i want us to do in the remainder of our time today is i want us to talk and i want to get extremely extremely practical of some things that we can do to grow no matter where we are in our life situation to grow as people who are overflowing in hope so like right now if things are smooth sailing for you i believe if you will practice these things it will prepare you for those times when inevitably there are some difficulties in life I think if right now you're in the middle of a season that's just very, very difficult, that these things can help to elevate you to a place of hopefulness, and you can call them whatever you want, exercises, practices, disciplines. I'm referring to them as habits, the habits of hope, because I, I desire for me and for us that these would become daily, weekly, monthly, annual life rhythm habits for us. And as we look at these very practical things that we can do to grow in hopefulness, I want to tell you right off the bat, there are three things that I don't want to do. One is I don't want to give shallow, faulty theology. I don't want to give Christian cliches and platitudes. I don't want to put a Christian bumper sticker on a totaled car, okay? Sometimes pastors can do that. I don't want to do that. The second thing is I don't want to in any way downplay Or diminish the difficulty, the pain, the sorrow, the loss, the hardships that some of you are going through and facing right now. I I don't want to just, hey, don't worry, be happy to you, because it is very, very real. And the third thing is, I don't want to be overly simplistic. These are simple things that every one of us can do, but they're not simplistic. This isn't stuff that I just came up with. What I want us to do is I want us to look throughout Scripture and see men and women who've gone through very difficult times and in the midst of that, when we would say they could be or they should be hopeless, that they responded with hopefulness. And what was it about them? What what was consistent? What did they do that we can follow their example? So the first habit or the first practice is one that is kind of repetitious. It's what we've talked about throughout this uh, series and also throughout today. And the first one is to refocus, refocus on the source, refocus on the source. What is the source of our hope? From week one, we talked about there's a dramatic difference between what we hope for and who we hope in. And we need to make sure that we're focusing on the right thing, because whatever we hope for will eventually disappoint us, and many who we hope in may disappoint us. But there is one who will never let us down, who will never disappoint us. That one will be the source of our hope, and we need, in the midst of those hardships, and and even in the difficult times, and even in the good times, make sure that we refocus on the source of our hope. The Apostle Paul, as I mentioned, and we've used a lot of his writings in this series, Because he's forever writing about hope. You know, the hope to which God has called you, he writes. That that this God of hope would cause us to overflow with hope. And yet his life is just fraught with difficulties. If you ever read in 2 Corinthians this, this letter he wrote to the church in Corinth, in chapter 4, chapter 6, and chapter 11, he just lists out all the hardships of his life. I mean, on every front, relationally, vocationally, with uh, you know, uh, physically, with, with the lie, the and, and just unthinkable difficulties of life. And yet he's always talking about hope. He's still overflowing with hope, even when everything seems to be against him. And you may be aware, many of you are, that Paul poured into a young man, just really invested in this young guy named Timothy. He was like a spiritual father to this young man. He encouraged him, he, you know, uh, took him along with him and, and all this. And Paul, when, when he would talk with Timothy, he would make sure that Timothy understood that it is such an incredible privilege that we've received the grace of Jesus Christ, that we get to be called the sons and daughters of God. And it was such an honor to be called into the ministry, to, to take the kingdom of God and, and the message of the good news of Jesus Christ and as he just says this with Timothy, and he's believing in Timothy, and pouring into Timothy, and ready to hand off things to Timothy, I think that as a spiritual father, he's concerned that, that maybe the hardships of life and ministry could hit Timothy, and Timothy could become discouraged and maybe give it up. And so in one of his letters to this young Timothy, he again, he just lays out, hey man, it is such a privilege, we've got the grace of God, it's such an honor, we get to be called in to, to be the ministers of his kingdom. He says, but it's not always easy. And there's some difficulties. And then he writes in these words, that is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because, and look at this, because I know whom I've believed. And I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. I know the source of my hope. You know, some of us were raised in a church where we sang a hymn that this was the refrain. Any of you remember that? I know whom I have believed, which was a fun way to say believed, and am and, and, and persuaded. There's no uncertainty that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. Listen, ladies only on the third stand, it says, men join us on the refrain. I'm just taking you back to your childhood church. there. <laughs> He says, Listen, I know. That, that whole song, every verse says, I don't understand this, I don't get this, but this thing I know comes refrain. I know who I believed. I know who my source is. And to refocus on the source of our hope that is in Jesus. In, in Hebrews chapter 11, the whole chapter is just this, this list of people, men and women who are by faith doing incredible things. At the end of the chapter, the writer of Hebrews commends some people because. They went to their grave never having received what had been promised to them. They never got it. It was a hope deferred. It was a hope unfulfilled, and yet they continued on in faith. And then he opens up in chapter 12 and says, because of this, because of these men and women of faith who've gone before us, since we're surrounded, he says, by such a great cloud of witnesses, then let us, the way we live our lives, let us you know, put aside everything that sin that entangles and, the, and, and all these things that hold us back and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, and then in verse two, he says this, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let's make sure that our focus is on the one who gave us our faith, who will see us through. And here's part of the reason why. Because he understands. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because he understands hardship. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's fix our eyes on him. When I moved to Bellingham in 1987 to a small Cornwall Park church of God, there was a young couple that had started coming to the church with their two little daughters, Roger and Leanne Patterson. Some of you may remember Roger and Leanne. Leanne was kind of a Christian version of Roseanne Barr. Can always just spoke her mind, a little bit crass. she a fun lady, fun lady. Roger felt called in the ministry. They moved to Everett to, to pastor a church. And Leanne uh, discovered that she had cancer. And she fought cancer, did everything that they could. And all the way through that, one of the favorite courses of one of her favorite hymns was this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Eventually, Leanne lost her battle with cancer, but she never lost her hope. Because the source of her hope was not in her health. It was in Jesus. So we fix our eyes. The psalmist writes this in Psalm 27. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. This is one of the habits, is to refocus on the source. The second one is to remain in the truth. This is so important for us, to remain in the truth. And and we're not just talking about, again, positive affirmations i'm good enough i'm smart enough doggone people like me that those are that's fine that's wonderful there's something more than that i read a i read a line and I, i i'm pretty sure it was john ortberg but i want to be careful i don't know exactly but i'm pretty sure this sounds like john ortberg the line was this that we need to cultivate a mind that is dominated by the truth of god's word I'll say it again. We need to cultivate, which means it's an intentional act. It's not going to just happen. We need to cultivate a mind that is dominated by the truth of God's word so that when the enemy throws lies at us, we can say, no, wait, 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 wait. That's not true. This is God's word. This is true. When the enemy says, listen, God must not care. He must not love you anymore. He doesn't hear your prayers. Wait a second. I know that's not true. This is what God's word says. When the distractions of this world try to take us off and try to tell us something, he said, wait a second, this is what God's Word says. And to just be dominated by this truth. The psalmist writes in Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word, I put my trust, my, my hope, that my mind is filled with God's Word. You know, David, David's known for a lot of things. Military exploits, writing great psalms, being the king, amazing men. There's a story in David's life that doesn't get as much airtime. I never once saw this story on the flannel graph in the Sunday school I was raised in. But David and his men and their families are dwelling in Philistine land in a place called Ziklag, which is just a cool name for a town. And as, uh, as David and his fighting men have been off to battle... They've been away, and it kind of implies they've been away for maybe up to a year fighting a battle. And as they come back home to Ziklag, you can imagine within the hearts of these men who've been away from their families and their homes for up to a year, so longing for the loving embrace of their spouses, can't wait for the laughter and the joy of their children, the comfort of their own homes, what David and his men are not aware of because there's not Instagram or Twitter or any kind of Facebook feeds for them to know this, Is that while they've been gone, the Amalekites have come into Ziklag and overthrown it. And they have taken all the women, all the children, all the elderly, and they've destroyed all the homes. They've burnt them all down. So David and his men, filled with all this excitement to see their family be back at home, they come into Ziklag and there's nothing but ashes and all the people are gone. And it says that these mighty warriors, they wept bitterly. They wept until they had no strength left, until there was no tears. Their homes were gone. Their wives were gone. Their children were gone. Their parents were gone. Everything's destroyed. A very hopeless situation. Even for David, his family's gone. His home is destroyed as well. But it gets even worse for David. In 1 Samuel, it says, And David was greatly distressed. We can understand why, but there's even more. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. Not only has he lost his family, his home, but now the guys that are with him, they're getting ready to rebel. They're getting a rope, they want to lynch this guy, they want to stone him, they want to kill him. There's death threats. David doesn't have a small group he can go to. He doesn't have any close friends he can go to. They all want to kill him. He can't go to the temple. In this hopeless situation, what does David do? This is so amazing. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You think, well, what, what does that look like? i tell you what I think it looks like. Is it maybe he slipped away, got by himself, and just reminded himself that even though the circumstances look this way, there's a truth about God and there's a truth about himself that will give him strength. And maybe... Maybe as he spends some time away, he just thinks back to those words he penned so many years earlier. You know, the Lord is my shepherd. I mean, he protects me, he provides for me, he's my shepherd. And I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And when I'm confused, He guides me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. And even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely... Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And, 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 I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think he just comes back and says, I need to fill my mind. I need to cultivate a mind that's dominated by the truth of God's word. This is who God is. This is who I am in Christ. This is his promises. In Romans, we read these words. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Listen, this isn't an idea that I came up with. Romans 12 says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, cultivating a mind dominated by the truth of God's word. Philippians 4.8 says whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely or admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Colossians 3 says set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth and below. See, this, this is why we want you to be in Scripture every day on your own, why we want you to read it and study it and memorize it, why we want you to reflect on it and apply it. This is why we want you in small groups to be able to discuss it together. This is why we want you in gatherings like this where together we can look in God's Word so that we can be intentionally, habitually cultivating a mind that is dominated by the truth of God's Word, to live that out. The third habit is this, not just to to refocus on the source and remain Uh, in the truth. But the third habit is to redirect to worship. Because wouldn't you agree with me that when there's some hardship in life, it is real easy to get fixated on that, to just focus on that, to ruminate on that, to watch that, to look at that, to be so stuck on that and to be filled with fear and worst case scenario and hopelessness and despair all the time. You know, we, we nurse it, we rehearse it, we disperse it. All that stuff happens all the time. I'm not talking about burying your head in the sand. I'm not pretending like it doesn't exist. When we redirect to worship in those times, it redirects our eyes onto God and his greatness and his goodness instead of all these things that are going on. One more story. A minor prophet. I grew up calling him Habakkuk. Some of you call him Habakkuk. Some of you have never heard it. it. sounds like a hiccup. His name is Habakkuk. I'm going to use that one because that's my default mode. A little minor prophet. There's just three chapters of his book in the end of the Old Testament. And Habakkuk starts off with just this honest dialogue with God. God, why? How long? This isn't fair. You're going to use these nasty Assyrians to discipline your people. And he just pours out. I mean, this is, it's again, it's this beautiful picture of honest prayer. He just pours it out to God. And God responds back to him and says, yeah, but Habakkuk, I am going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if I told you. I am still in control. My plans are still going forward. I do have a hope for you. Things are going to be great. And then have you ever heard someone, they'll they'll be telling you a story or or something, they'll say, wait for it. God was the first one that ever did that. (laughs) Habakkuk chapter two, verse three, mark it down. He's saying all this stuff to Habakkuk, and he says, wait for it, wait for it. And then in chapter 3 of Habakkuk, Habakkuk then responds again with a prayer. And throughout the, the beginnings of that prayer, he just acknowledges the greatness of God, reminding himself of that truth as well. And then he just pours out the reality of what they're facing and the difficulty. He does not ignore it. And in Habakkuk 3, verse 16, he says, "'I heard, and my heart pounded, "'my lips quivered at the sound, "'decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. "'Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity "'to come on the nation invading us.'" It's not looking good, it's gonna get worse. And then he says, "'And economically and personally, "'though the fig tree does not bud, "'there are no grapes on the vines, "'and the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food there's no sheep in the pen no cattle in the stalls A pretty hopeless situation what do you do when it's all falling apart and he says yet nevertheless regardless in spite of all of that yet I will rejoice In the Lord, not in my circumstances, but I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. You know, so many times they say, How are you doing? Well, under the circumstances, get out from under the circumstances. Yeah, their circumstances are there, but He puts my feet on the heights. I will praise the Lord. Václav Havel was the last president of Czechoslovakia and the first president of the Czech Republic. And he was a dissident. He was a critic of communism. He spent many, many years and different stints in jail, in prison, as a political prisoner. And he was an amazing author. And I have no idea where he is spiritually, but he wrote these words about hope. He said, hope is not prognostication. You know, it's not you know predicting the future. It is an orientation of the spirit, an orientation of the heart. It transcends the world that is immediately experienced and is anchored somewhere beyond its horizons. That's what worship does. Worship reorients our spirit, reorients our heart, that no matter what we're facing, no matter what the outcome, no matter what the circumstances and the situation, the season of life, that my hope is anchored somewhere beyond these unmet hoped-fors, and it's who I hope in. That it transcends and connects me to this one who will never disappoint me. To worship that way you know, the uh, uh, I, 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 someday I'm gonna give you a one-off sermon on the sons of Korah, because it's so cool. But 11 Psalms are attributed to them in the Psalms. One of them is Psalm 42. Psalm 42 is best known for the, you know, as the deer panted for the streams of water, so my soul points for you. Twice in Psalm 42, there's the same line that comes up again and again, where it's like the, whatever son of Korah is just like, speaking to himself kind of third party you know like come on marvel come on dude you know he's like he says this why are you downcast oh my soul why so disturbed within me he's talking to himself and he doesn't give his soul the chance to respond because the soul will have a whole list of why instead he just instructs he says put your hope in god he's talking to himself put your hope in god for i will yet praise him My Savior and my God. You see what he does here? He recognizes, man, there's stuff that's pulling me down. But I'm going to refocus in the source of my hope. And I'm going to cultivate a mind that is dominated by the truth that God, the Almighty God, is my Savior. Not just the Savior of the world, he's my Savior. And I'm going to redirect to worship because I will praise him. See, these habits, these are habits that we can do by ourselves. These are the habits that we do every single weekend. These are habits of hope, habits individually and collectively. And and I believe that every single one of us need to develop these habits, but I also believe that there is great strength in practicing these habits together. That's why we believe that engaging regularly with a group of other believers is so important. That's why we gather in this room. That's why we believe you should gather with other believers on a weekly basis. And if Cornwall's not your church, then find another one where you can focus on the hope, which is Jesus Christ. You can cultivate a mind on the, on the truth of the Word of God and collectively lift up your voices to reorient your spirit and anchor your hope on something that transcends the situation, to worship God, and to do this together. So, so really, the, the challenge that I, that I throw out to you is this, because every single one of us can do this, is to begin doing these habits, practicing these habits on a daily basis, and engage with us and do this together on a weekly basis. But I want us to end today in a little bit of a different way. Because I believe we're supposed to be a community of hope for each other. The the strong bear up with the failings of the weak. To weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And I know, partly just statistically in a room with this many people, but partly because I'm your pastor, and I know some of you, that some of you are going through a pretty dark season right now, a pretty tough time, overwhelmed with despair, that your soul is downcast within you. And I want to invite you to take a courageous step, be a little bit vulnerable, and allow there to be a community of hope to surround you as well. And if there's anyone this morning who's just like, you know, I'm in one of those seasons. And I could use an extra infusion of hope. I, I don't want to embarrass anyone. But would you be willing to just stand up? You won't be asked to say anything, give any explanation. Would you just stand up? And say, I could just use some extra prayer. Thank you. Thank you for your courage. Thanks, guys. Remain standing. All right? Yeah. See, God knows what you're going through. All right? Okay. Thanks, Thank you. All right. And this is what I'm gonna ask as these men and women are are standing around this this auditorium. Would there be at least two or three people to go? You may have to get out of your chair and just stand by them. Just put a hand on their shoulder. Don't ask them a question and do not give them any advice. Just go and stand by them. To physically let them know you're not alone. Go have some people come up here and join these folks. We'll get a couple more up here. A couple of' you come over here. That'd be great. And I want to read the lines that stanza my dad used to quote, And then I want to pray. "God has not promised. skies always blue." flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for all trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy and undying love. Father, you are the God of hope. Jesus, you are our Prince of Peace. Holy Spirit, you are our Comforter. And you know what these men and women are facing who are standing here. You know the pain, the sorrow, the loss, the despair. And I just pray now, in the name of Jesus that your presence would so surround them I pray that even in this season and especially in this season they would keep their eyes focused on you as their source I pray that I pray that they would keep their minds on the truth of your word and truly that they would give, in this difficult time, the sacrifice of praise and worshiping you, and that you would fill them with hope overflowing all the days of their life. And I would ask that the rest of you would stand now, and if you know this, if you would say with me, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. I've asked the team to lead us in a song that is so fitting for this moment. Sing this, and then I'll close this in prayer.